0: you are listening to Inside the Newsroom, a podcast about how your Niagara Daily Newspapers brings you the news. I'm your host, Grant LaFleche. In our last episode, we looked at how newspaper investigations start, how journalists can access confidential information, and how we navigate the sometimes tricky legal minefields of publishing an investigative story. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the more difficult and thorny issues reporters face when conducting an in-depth investigation the verification of information, protecting whistleblowers, and the use of anonymous sources. I will again be talking about how I put together the investigative piece we recently published on the hiring of Niagara Region's Chief Administrative Officer, and I will be joined by my award-winning colleagues Bill Sawchuk, who talks about his 2015 investigative profile of Robert Megna of the Bayshore Groups, and Karina Walter, who discussed her 2012 expose of the All-Canadians Kitchen scandal. In an ideal world, journalists would have direct access to information on issues of public interest. But this is not always the case. Often, information that could be released isn't. Now, journalists can avail themselves of the freedom of information processes, but far too often that process is lengthy, expensive, and doesn't actually result in the release of information. The Toronto Star's Trust in Journalism Project, from which this podcast actually springs, recently published a story about how difficult it can be to get public information via a freedom of information request. The story, published by the Star on March the 30th, said it took three years and generated a bill of $32,000 for the newspaper to get information and documents about the municipal subway. Now, needless to say, that kind of cost can put information out of reach for most citizens and journalists, leaving important information in the shadows. So what does a journalist do when freedom of information processes don't work or simply won't find the right information that we need? Well, very often we will turn to whistleblowers and confidential sources. In the case of our investigation into the hiring of regional CAO Carmen D'Angelo in 2016, it was confidential sources who provided key information. A whistleblower gave us access to confidential and secret documents, including a memo that contained a short list of the candidates for the CAO job. We were able to identify the authenticity of the memo in several ways, not all of which I can explain on this podcast for reasons that will become apparent momentarily, but some methods I can't talk about. For example, we were able to confirm that the contents of the memo was legitimate by contacting the CAO candidates it listed, all of whom were shocked I knew who they were because they were promised their names would be kept confidential by the region. Digital metadata and other digital information obtained by the standard revealed three important facts. Number one, the memo was created in September 2016 by Robert D'Amboise, the policy director of regional chair Alan Caslin. The memo was created around a month before final candidate interviews. Number two, the memo had not been changed or tampered with. And three, it was in possession of Carmen D'Angelo. Since we published the story, a few Niagara regional councillors have insisted the standard reveal our sources and turn over our evidence to the legal firm counsel hired to investigate the matter. We will do no such thing. Journalists do not reveal confidential sources, particularly the identities of those sources who took considerable risk to get information out to the public, which is certainly the case in our story about the region's CAO. And as I pointed out in a column I wrote about the CAO story, the sources who provided us with information risked professional and potentially legal blowback if their identities were known. Similarly, we have chosen not to publish the D'Ambois memo because we promised confidentiality to the CIO candidates it lists. To turn over the materials in our possession would risk exposing our sources, and as a journalist and as a newspaper, we are bound by our promise of confidentiality to a source until such time as that source releases us from that promise. Secondly, newspaper reporters do not do the work of government investigators, nor do we do the bidding of politicians. For a newspaper to serve its critical function in a democracy, it must by definition stand apart from officialdom. We report on what the government does, including official investigations, but we do not do investigative work for governments or their hired personnel. If we were to turn over our materials and sources, not only would that put our sources at risk, but it would do immense damage to our ability to investigate and report on the government. In short, if we gave up our sources, people would be unwilling to come forward and speak to us in the future. Now, all that said, the use of confidential and anonymous sources is a thorny issue for journalists, whose first preference is always to have sources on the record. The use of anonymous sources is sometimes unavoidable, but is, frankly, the exception to the rule. So when I sat down with Bill Sawchuk and Karina Walter to discuss their investigations, we talked about how, when, and why we use anonymous sources. That's one of the challenges, because especially, I mean, that's stuff that you and I have done on, on the regional government in the last, say, year and a half, two years. I mean, we have had, you know, leaks of information or stuff sent to us by email or stuff brown bagged, as it wasn't the case in the Magna thing. And then part of our job at that point becomes not just accepting the information, but and you've, t- you've touched on it there in terms of where is, you know, what is this information? How do I verify it? Is, is this part of a, a scheme to get at somebody or is the information legitimate? When you were looking at that particular uh, story and there were, as I recall, that's when we began to learn more about uh, Mr. Meghna's connections to his past criminal convictions and his, his connections to the Hells Angels at one point. I mean, how did you go about verifying that information to the point where you could actually it was usable and reportable for you?
1: Well, what I mean, I kind of broke it down. I, I almost put it into different piles, the information that I had. Stuff that was fairly easy to, to verify, which were newspaper clippings. You know, you go and take a look at that. And some of the other uh, information, clearly it was someone who had an axe to grind. Just because they had an axe to grind doesn't mean you dismiss it completely. You just have to, you know, be that much more, uh, you know, vigilant about making sure that, you know, you have the story right. And for me, it was then trying to get in contact with people from his past. And it took, you know, a fair bit of, of digging around, of trying, of, of calling people and striking out and calling people, getting a wrong number and uh, having other people say, I don't want to talk about it, uh, until you can finally get to some people who have some credibility, who you can, again, research the research yes, before yes. you get to the point where you start to... Um, put together have an idea of a story and all the time realizing that this is a a a man who carries a lot of weight in the community he's you know well healed and there were uh, a number of people who really didn't want to see that story come about and, you know the, the idea was we should be supporting him he's here doing a, a, some terrific a terrific project and all the newspapers doing is bashing him. why are you calling why are you asking about these things uh, so, I think, I imagine that, especially you have, and and Karina too, have run into that kind of why are you doing this? What, what what you know is it is this necessary? And the other thing with the Magna was I was kind of determined because it was so personal. I didn't want to use uh, anonymous sources if I could possibly mm-hmm. uh, do it. Th- there have been times I have used anonymous sources, but in this case. Um, Part of it was, yeah, you're going to say all these things about it, you know, that that may be negative about someone or that may be taken in a negative light. You got to put your put your name behind it. Um, That's the only way this is going to work.
0: The the issue of anonymous sources is interesting because that was what I ran into when I was doing my recent uh, story on the hiring process of the regional CAO, in which I had uh, a number of well placed sources, but because they didn't want there was real threat of professional blowback or legal blowback to all of them, so they didn't want their name put on the record, which then complicates everything because you can't, um, you know, maybe I'll throw this because I think you both had to do this in different ways. Mm-hmm. But and I described it in a piece I wrote for the paper, which was it was always sort of two steps forward and one step back. So I might have a source who's completely is, is beyond reproach and you know what they're saying is accurate. Uh, but because it's being offered anonymously, you can't use it. You have to go find two or three or four, and in my case, ended up with 10 other sources that are confirming this story. But if any of those sources along the way, if source number three tells you a new bit of information, it's like the clock winds right back to the beginning, and you kind of start over as you're trying to re-verify uh, new information that you, you got before. And, and I'm thinking in your case, Karina, the lawyers gave you a threshold, which I presume is, is a, was a question of accuracy. Are you seeing the same pattern develop across this scam so that you were then able to say, this is what this company is doing, this is how they operate, and this is how they're taking advantage of people?
2: Right, because we were preparing it to to have a piece that could run without, separate from what was happening with the police, you know, so the idea was it would be running... Um, and we would have these allegations against this company that wasn't facing criminal charges at the time. And like I said, the police did end up charging and so we had to push our deadline forward. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, you don't want to be accusing a company of doing something wrong that might just be part of a regular business. In this case, it definitely
0: would you remember what that threshold was? Did you, do you remember offhand how many victims you needed? I can't
2: remember if it was, like, 10 or 12. It was a lot, it was, though. It was, yeah. Because I, I remember you were, you were making
0: phone calls. You had, like, a vacation coming up, and you were making phone calls, like, right up until almost your flight was leaving or something. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, you know, and we verified things in other ways, too. I had talked to former employees of the company, you know, and some of these people were still hoping they were going to see paychecks. Um, but, you know, it just... Uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't happening for them we had court documents um, because the people who were running the company were going by other names they had previously been charged with frauds in the past under different names um, we had a company website that was taken down um, that had, was actually stolen from a US website so they had taken. They had taken word for word <laughs> the description of what they did for and the um, the accolades that they were receiving from customers. They were cribbed from this other website down in the States. So we phoned them to make sure they had nothing to do with this company up here and, and also just to kind of get their reaction. So it was more than just the customers, but for the, the, the lawyers, that was one of the things they wanted to see was that they had a certain number of victims.
0: There's always this issue when we do investigative pieces of sort of confirming or verifying and re-verifying and going back to the beginning and, and starting over. And I, I just, when, when you were working on the Magna thing, Bill, and, and I certainly have run into this a couple of times in the last few years, it's that the length of time it takes to bring something to publication because we're obligated, not just by our lawyers, but by sort of our professional responsibility, to kind of get as close to the truth as is humanly possible, takes just a humongous amount of time. It, it really is something that, is not 9 to 5. You, you bring it home at night. You, you call people at strange hours in order to get them. Um, so when, you, when, when I ask you a question about how much time did it take, it's, it's not like you're clock punching on this thing, is it? I mean, you, you come in for the beginning of your shift. You leave at the end of it. But this is the thing that lives with you for months sometimes until it comes to an end. Yeah, it,
1: one of the interesting things I ran into the Magna was uh, there were two people who were really key to the story who I kind of phone contact eventually found out of the blue and again had to kind of Tell them who I was and what I was doing and why I was doing it, and you know, check the internet and see that I actually worked for the paper, <laughs> those kinds of things. And what happened was, when I first contacted them, they were angry, and they gave me like some really good quotes and some really good stuff. And then in contacting them again, in trying to piece the part together and make sure one part agrees with the other. Um, especially the one gentleman, he really softened his position to, you know, from being angry to, well, you know, we had our differences. But he's really not that bad a guy to, you know, he's practically the devil (laughs) to, he's not that bad a guy. And then I had to kind of reconcile. I had these two kind of separate interviews with this guy where, you know, I had very, very different information. So then I went back and did a third interview, um, again, saying, this, and I need to go over this again to kind of try to get a kind of final... Thing, because I didn't, if I only took the first interview, then it's not fair, I think, to, to the subject and to the story to discount the second time when, when he had had some time to think about it and he'd kind of softened his position, you know, quite a bit. There was, you know, they weren't in conflict, but it was just from, you know, he's a really bad deal, mm-hmm. oh well, he, you know, he's, he's had some problems, but we did some great things together. The other interesting thing with the main that, that I never did solve um, but I really tried to was one of the people who I needed for the story had gone into the witness protection program after he had testified against uh, Megna in a Barry court that this Meghna had been using um, outlaw bikers to collect uh, debts yes. and uh, a business partner had owed Meghna money and uh, had a, unbeknownst uh, a biker roll up to his business and say hey you've you got to pay and this guy had testified actually worn a wire um, and so, in trying to find him, um, you know, was interesting. Now, he had been kicked out of the witness program protection program i found out as, as i as yeah. i looked and, and had gone out west to saskatoon was the place i started looking and i never did find him we ended up i ended up using the information in the story but it would have been much better to talk to him in fact but i i what i did there was i went back to the court transcripts yes and took you know the, the, those words so i did have a background but i i really did want to talk to him um, you know, personally, just to kind of, you know, fill in some of the, the blanks and add to kind of, because the the stuff in the court transcript was fairly uh, dry and clinical. Yeah. It was, you know, he was answering questions in, in terms, and I wanted to really talk to him, and, and I felt like I could find him, um, but a, and in the end, I ran out of time and never did.
0: One of the things I think is interesting about the the pieces all three of us have done, the, the CAO piece for the region I wrote, Canadian Kitchens and the Magna thing, is there is that blend of, Documents. So we have court documents. You have customer lists. In my case, there's uh, secret uh, memos and so on. And then we're marrying that information with with the, with the human side of it—the people who are impacted or the people who have have other um, information. Um, How important is it? And we'll maybe start with you, Karina. I mean, how important is it to to have both of those sides when we're doing a story? It's not just a matter of here's what the court transcript says or here's what the regional, the confidential regional document we've got leaked, but to be able to reach out to actual human persons and say, well, here's the documentary information I have, but uh, how did it impact you?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what makes, you know, readers uh, understand why the story is important when they see in black and white why why somebody um, you know, called us in the first place, why somebody was willing to talk to us. Um, in the case of all well, Canadian kitchens, I mean, there were people who were devastated by what happened. There were retirees, there were families who had you know, saved up for a very long time for their, for their kitchens and, um, and then lost that money. And, and one of the worst things that happened out of this was, it was a, it was a, a scheme where people would pay a 25% when they sign a contract, Twenty-five percent when the company comes and rips out the kitchen they have, and then another twenty-five percent when they deliver the cupboards, and another twenty-five percent when the project is is finished. Most people got up to the point where their kitchens were ripped out. So
0: they paid the fifty percent.
2: They paid the fifty percent, but like they lost what they already had. So they didn't get the new kitchen, but they also didn't have their old kitchen. So they were washing their dishes out of their bathtubs. They were, you know, doing takeout every night. They were trying to make their kids, their kids meals on hot plates and stuff. Yeah. Like it was, it was um, there was a real human toll. And for some people, there was one family I spoke with um, who were uh, immigrants and they had saved for this kitchen and they, you know, they had done everything right. And in the end they, they lost their money too. So it was really sad, you know, and, and a lot of people that I talked to on the phone, the people who were out in Mississauga and things, it uh, was just this like shock, right? Shock that this could happen to them. A lot of these people had done everything right. They had looked over the contracts, they had checked um, websites. the The company had provided them with references to call. and they would call these references and they would be fake references, right? but they were they were hearing they were doing everything that you should do as a consumer when you're when you're doing these things. So I think it's it's really important, but at the same time, you can't just have a bunch of of stories um, from people about how they're impacted without having those documents to kind of back up what they're saying right
0: in in, in your case and you'll have to refresh my memory here were, were you using um anonymous sources or were you using those for context and then only quoting uh say the people who, who were on the record
2: i think i was almost everybody was on the record and there were so many victims there was there was no reason to use mm-hmm. anonymous um sources there may have been a former employee that was anonymous um but I think most of the, most of the other people mm-hmm. I have were,
0: were Well what, do, what do we think about anonymous sources? And again, I'm I'm being somewhat selfish because the story I just <laughs> did uh weighted I mean there was a weighted on, on particularly 10 or 12 uh, people in different aspects of that story who would, were only speaking on the condition that I would I would protect them. And, uh, I mean, this goes back uh, months, by the way, Bill, for you, because, I mean, you and I both come into our own criticism at Regional Council, but there is that idea that, oh, they're using anonymous sources or they're using leaked documents or, or so on. So uh, what do you two think about anonymous sources? And, and on occasions, whether it's these stories or others, that you had to use them. Um, How do you use them responsibly and where do you think journalists ought to be drawing the line and saying yes I'm going to use an anonymous source for this story versus no I'm not going to because it's not appropriate for this piece.
1: Um, Sometimes it's absolutely necessary. You can't sometimes the stakes are so high that you can't get at the true truth of the story without um, granting some people anonymity. That said, um, I'm really careful, I really hesitate, I really put a lot of thought into whether I'm going to allow a source to be anonymous um, or I'm going to insist that they they put their And It has to do with credibility. If you have a story with that's completely anonymous and you're doing this all the time I think you do lose some credibility because people don't actually have to stand behind their words and people can say well you know he could be just making it up. The way I describe it to people is, is the anonymous source, you can't completely build your story around it's it's like the, mm-hmm. the the seasoning in a meal if done properly um it really adds to the whole picture um, but if you overdo it you wreck the whole meal <laughs> right it's, you, good, it's you a good dump, way to it if you it. dump a, t- a, a ton of parsley you know into the spaghetti sauce you've ruined it whereas if you if you use it properly and in the right quantity, it really does can add to the picture. And what you're trying to do, as you said, is paint as true a picture as you possibly can of the uh, of what happened, of either the subject or what the the the, uh, the you know what what's happening. And I, I just you I think you have to really put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. It is part of the business. I mean, yeah. um, it, it's accepted. You can you know courts have said you're allowed to do this. Uh, but, again, in terms of credibility, you have to really put a lot of thought into whether it's appropriate or not. Yeah, there
2: has to be a compelling reason yes. to use them, yeah, right? That's, that's a good way the, I mean, we all saw, you know, in the show The Wire, right, you go out and you cover a, a vigil at night and you're talking to anonymous people and there's like a 1,000 people there. You know, somebody will go on mm-hmm. the record. There's no reason for somebody yes. uh, at a vigil not to give their name. But in other cases, if somebody has a – if there's a genuine reason, and I think we've done it before, if somebody um, – you know, his life is in danger or something like that. That's just, Mm -hmm. um, and in the case that you, that you just did, you have people who were interviewed for a job who, um, always assumed they would be anonymous. Yes. And, uh, their names were never (laughs) supposed to be public.
0: The, the, there's also a responsibility, isn't there, when we do use anonymous sources. And it's one of the things we were careful with, with this CAO story Uh, We're not just saying, oh, a anonymous person or a former staffer or a current staffer or something says X, Y, Z. There's first that level of confirmation where I was going Mm -hmm. to multiple well-placed sources to confirm information. And if I couldn't get certain elements of that confirmed, it just never got used. But then there's also this responsibility, isn't there, when we publish those stories to kind of lay it out in the piece to the reader and say, we've spoken to this number of anonymous sources to confirm this piece of information, um, as opposed to just saying, oh, well, there's one anonymous source, and you're not even explaining to the reader the mm-hmm. reason for that use, right? I mean, there, we kind of have to be even extra transparent and extra fastidious with the way we publish these stories when we do rely on anonymous sources.
1: I mean, anonymous sources m- m- is a multiplier for your work because when they're not putting their name with it, um, you have a, a real responsibility to double and triple and quadruple check what they're saying and make sure you, in a sense, take on the accountability for mm-hmm. what the person yeah, says it's
0: it's your name and your paper that's on the line
1: that's right whereas if someone else says you know I'm I'm the mayor and this is what I'm saying about a guy then if there's blowback if it's wrong then people will come and say to the mayor you know say hey the mayor's wrong on this but when it's an anonymous source they can't do that so you kinda take that extra responsibility and it adds a whole bunch of work again it's if it's important you don't want you want to do it um, because oftentimes it's it's a really crucial piece of the puzzle but you're 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 adding drastically to the the actual workload of a journalist because the way I look at it is now I'm responsible for what he says. If I'm not letting him use the words, use his name, then I have to. I'm responsible for the words, and I got to double and triple and. Make sure that you know I could have other people whose whose stories line up with this. Did did Magna talk to you for your piece? Did no, you know? and I called him. I bet you. Oh, he must have hated me. I must have called him forty times, and I uh, <laughs> became you know you know kind of uh, chatty with his with his with his assistant because you know I was calling constantly. But it, that was part of the thing was we had to give him, especially because he wasn't a politician or in a sense a real true public figure. Um, be it a, a police chief or and, you know uh, in, in government, he was a, a private businessman and in terms of defamation the 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 requirements are much more stringent um, you have to give him a chance where if you phone the mayor and you give the mayor a chance to to respond, you don't have to wait that long for until you go. Mm-hmm. The mayor didn't respond, but in terms of this kind of thing, you have to be very specific about what you're asking, him, and you have to give him multiple chances. And I certainly did. I went there. I camped out there in the camp. That's up. right, but you I, did. I stood yeah. in the parking lot, yeah. <laughs> uh, expecting him to come in. And I don't know whether he saw me and came in a back door. Uh, I spent a, you know an afternoon over at the old GM property trying to you know wait for him to show up. Uh, that that kind of thing which is dull, um, it might sound like kind of fun, but it's not really, it's you stand <laughs> no, it's, in a corner yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with your hands in your pockets for a couple hours, uh, and you don't want to be playing with your phone too much in case he slips by you, that kind of stuff, so th- th- those are kind of th- some of the things I did. And
0: there's there's always that, you know, when, when people see in the newspaper uh, you know, Chair Kazan didn't comment or Mr. Megan didn't comment or somebody, you know, the, the, the owners of Canadian Kitchen couldn't be reached. I mean, that's not as if we, we called them once and then 15 minutes later we published the story. There, there is this sometimes aggravatingly frustrating process where you're making every... Sometimes we go to ridiculous lengths to give people an opportunity to comment uh, so that they can't ever say we weren't fair to them. In the case of Canadian Kitchens, Karina, how many times do you, do you recall, like, like the, what were the efforts you went through to try uh, to get a hold of I them? I don't
2: remember. I mean, I remember trying to find the storefront and knocking on the door, and I remember um, phoning their, their, um, their number, and I, I think I emailed, um, I think I tried them at home, but uh, yeah, there's just no luck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it happens, though. Mm-hmm. And that, that's part of the reason that we have to do all the other work that we've just talked about when we, when we publish these stories. Because if, if, we, if we just relied on the official comment from the subject of the story, then we'd never be able to publish any of this stuff. Um, and I, it, just finally, and we can, we can leave it here, um, from both of your points of view, and we'll start maybe with Karina. Um, how important is it for newspapers to do that kind of work? You know, I think that we're in a a unique position, you know, in our region in particular, where we are the the papers of record. We're the only uh, daily newspapers. Uh, The radio station covers the news, but they're not doing investigations the way we do them. They're not really spending the time and the energy. Maybe they can't to get at these stories. Um, What's the value from your point of view of devoting resource to these kind of investigations, even in this era of, of cutbacks and, and limited staff. And th- that necessarily means if you're doing that kind of investigation, there's other stories that could be done that you're not going to be covering.
2: Right. Yeah. I think there's a huge value to readers because there are things that are happening with their tax dollars or, um, you know, with their businesses and in their schools uh, that people need to know about. And, um, Without an actual investigation, it's just rumour or speculation a lot of the times. And newspapers are generally the ones that bring these things to light. But you're, but you're right. There are other things that we have to do at the same time. And I, I guess that's the important thing to note here. This isn't Spotlight. It's not uh, The Post, if you've ever seen yes. it. I'm doing a lot of uh, pop culture references here today. But we don't have <laughs> like a team of uh, investigators who spend weeks or months working on these things and only these things. Um, your story uh, on the CAO was months, but you were also doing other things. Mm -hmm. You were doing, we have to fill a paper on a daily basis, whether it's the one that goes to a person's house or it's the the online one. People are expecting to see the daily news as well. They're expecting to see.
0: Yeah, and there's not like there's 20 of us here to do that work. That's right.
2: So these investigations, Bill's investigation, your investigation, my investigation, that was almost stuff that's happening on the side while you're also doing council coverage or court coverage or... You know, well, And for the two of you are
0: goes. in that position constantly because you're both at, you're at regional council bill, you're at city council. And those are just sort of news generating machines in terms of, you know, new bylaws passed or new initiative passed or taxes and that kind of thing. Um, how, how, I mean, how do you manage that, that caseload bill when you're working on something bigger and you've got to deal, the same as Karina, you've got to deal with all this uh, political stuff that needs kind of routine political stuff that needs coverage.
1: Well, for me, I try to, um, especially with with council, there's a rhythm to it, where there's a week where there's not much happening, then there's a week of meetings, and then there's a committee meetings, and then there's the actual council meeting, the week of that. So there's a three-week cycle, so I always have a week there where it's very, the council stuff is very light. There's there's not a lot to do, especially if you've kind of gotten the stuff done you needed to do uh, in the weeks coming up. Uh, so that, that that gives me a little bit uh, of play time, but uh, all the time it's, you know, they, you're constantly trying to juggle and find time and, uh, you know, and take, oh, i got an hour here. I'm going to, you know, give this guy a call, see what I can, see what I can drag up, hopefully he'll answer. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's part of what's happened in the newspaper industry. But I, in answering your question, if we don't do it, who's going to? And if you... It may sound a little bit corny, but if you're going to have a democracy, you have to give people information so they can make decisions, both, you know, just about life in general, the, the, the condition, the human condition in Niagara in, you know, 2018, you need to kind of sketch it as best you can. And if you, people don't have that information, they can't make informed choices uh, about a, a whole myriad of things. So it, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a duty. Uh, And a privilege to be able to to take care of that and to add to the the color and, um, you know, the fabric of a democratic society.
0: You've been listening to Inside the Newsroom, a podcast by your Niagara Daily newspapers, the St. Catherine Standard, the Niagara Falls Review, and the Willem Tribune. If you have any ideas or questions about this show, don't be shy about reaching out and sharing your thoughts with us you can email your feedback to grant.theflesch at In our next and final installment in this series, we'll be talking about the consequences and pushbacks journalists sometimes face when publishing an investigative story. I'm Grant LaFleche, and in the meantime and in between time, that's it for this edition of Inside the Newsroom.